0: Chapter Seventeen of Bertram Copes' Year. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White, Bertram Copes' Year by Henry Blake Fuller. Chapter Seventeen, Cope among Cross Currents. Next morning, at breakfast, Amy Leffingwell kept, for the most part, a rapt and meditative eye on her plate. Hortense gave her now and then an impatient, half-angry glare, and had to be cut short in some stinging observations on Cope. But it was foolish, Medora Phillips felt obligated to concede. What in the world made you do it? But Amy continued to smile at the tablecloth, She seemed to be intimating that there was a special folly which transcended mere general folly, and approximated wisdom. After breakfast she spoke a few words to Carolyn. She had had all night to think the matter over. She now saw it from a new angle, and in a new light. "'You should have seen how he shook himself free from that sail and all,' she said, and while we were swimming in, he held his hand under my chin, at least part of the time.' AND WHEN WE REACHED THE sandbars, HE PUT HIS ARM THROUGH MINE AND HELPED ME OVER EVERY ONE. AND IN THIS STATE OF MIND SHE WENT OFF TO HER CLASS. COPE WAS RECEIVED BY HIS OWN CLASS WITH A SUBDUED HILARITY. HIS YOUNG PEOPLE FELT THAT HE HAD SHOWN POOR JUDGMENT IN GOING OUT ON THE WATER AT ALL, FOR THE UNIVERSITY, BY TACIT CONSENT, LEFT THE LAKE PRETTY WELL ALONE. They thought that, once out, he had shown remarkably inept seamanship, and they thought that he had chosen a too near and too well-lighted stage for the exhibition of both. This forenoon the eighteenth-century novelists involved Smollett, and with every reference to the water looks of understanding travelled from student to student, that the class was of both sexes made the situation no better. Cope was in good enough physical condition. The unspeakable draft from the unspeakable flask had ensured that, but he felt what was in the air of the classroom, and was correspondingly ill at ease. He had had, for several days, an understanding with Basil Randolph that they were to go together to the next weekly reception of the President's wife. Randolph wished to push Cope's fortunes wherever he might, and to make him stand out from the general ranks of the young instructors. He had the entree to the Thursdays at the President's house, and he wanted Cope to meet personally and intimately, under the guidance he could provide, a few of the academic dignitaries, and some of the wealthier and more prominent townspeople. Notwithstanding Mrs. Phillips' confident impression, Cope's exploit, at her own table, had gained no wide currency. The people she had entertained— were people who expected and commanded a succession of daily impressions from one quarter or another. With them, a few light words on Cope's achievement were sufficient. They walked straight on toward the sensation the next day was sure to bring, but of course the whole university knew about his second performance. Some of its members had witnessed it, and all of them had read about it next day, in Churchton's four-page index. The president's wife was a sprightly lady who believed in keeping up the social end of things. Her Thursdays offered coffee and chocolate at a handsomely appointed table and a little dancing now and then for the livelier of the young professors and the daughters of the town's best-known families. Above all, she insisted on receiving, even on having a receiving line. She would summon, for example, the wife of one of the most eminent members of the faculty and the obliging spouse of some educationally-minded banker or manufacturer. And she herself always stood, of course, at the head of her line. When Cope came along with Randolph, she intercepted the flow of material for her several assistants farther on, and carried congestion and impatience into the waiting quay behind by detaining him and having it out. She caught his hand with a good firm nervous grasp, and flashed on him a broad, meaningful smile. "'Which saved which?' she asked heartily. Mrs. Ryder, who was farther along in the line, but not too far, beamed delightedly, yet without the slightest trace of malice. An eminent visiting educator, five or six steps behind our hero, frowned in question— and had to have the situation explained by the lady in his company cope a trifle embarrassed and half inclined to wish he had not come did what he could to deprive the episode of both hero and heroine it was about an even thing he guessed a matter of cooperation isn't that delightful exclaimed the president's wife to the wife of the banker before passing cope on and so modern "'Equality of the sexes, woman doing her share, etc., for this,' she presently said to the impatient educator from outside, "'are we co-educational?' and, "'Good teamwork,' she contrived to call after Cope, who was now disappearing in the crowd. Cope lost himself from Randolph and presently got away without seeing who was pouring coffee or who was the lightest on foot among the younger professors. The President's wife had asked him, besides, how the young lady had got through it, and had even inquired after her present condition. Well, Amy Leffingwell was enrolled among the university instructors, and doubtless the wife of the institution's head had been well within her rights even duly mindful of the proprieties. But the index, that sheet, staid and proper enough on most occasions, had seemed on this one to couple their names quite unwarrantably. Couple. Cope repeated the word, and felt an injury. If he had known that Amy had carefully cut out and preserved the offending paragraph, his thought would have taken on a new and more disquieting tone. In the inquiry of the President's wife about the condition of his co-partner in adventure he found a second source of dissatisfaction. He had not called up to ask after Amy, but mrs Phillips, with a great show of solicitude, had called up early on Monday morning to ask after him. He had then, in turn, made a counter-inquiry, of course, but he could take no credit for initiative. Neither had he yet called at the house, nor did he feel greatly prompted to do so. That must doubtless be done, but he might wait until the first fresh impact of the event should somewhat have lost its force. Mrs. Phillips' voice had kept, over the telephone, all its vibratory quality. Its tones expressed the most palpitating interest. It was already clear, and it became even clearer, when he finally called at the house, that she was, poetizing him into a hero, and that she regarded Amy herself as but a means, an instrument. At this Cope felt a little more mortified than before. He knew that he had done poorly in the boat, and he was not sure that, in the first moment of the upset, he should have freed himself unaided, and he confessed that he had not been quite in condition to do very well on the way landward. However, all passed. Within a fortnight or less, the incident would have dropped back into its proper perspective, and his students would have found some other matter for entertainment. In the circumstances he grasped at the first source of consolation that came. Randolph was now installed in his new apartment, and felt that, though not fully settled, he might risk asking Cope to dinner. You are the first, Randolph had said. Cope could not escape the flattery. It was almost comfort. His prompt acceptance was most welcome to Randolph. Cope had dwelt for a moment on the actual presence of Aunt Harriet and on his need of her. Randolph had made no precise study of recent chronology, taking the reason given over the wire as a valid one and feeling glad that there was no hitch this time. Randolph gave Cope a rapid view of the apartment, before they sat down to dinner. There were fewer pictures on the newly papered walls than there were to be, and fewer rugs on the freshly varnished floors. "'My standing lamp will be in that corner,' said Randolph in the living room. "'When it comes.' He drew attention to a second bedroom, where a man could be put up on occasion. "'You, for example, if you ever find yourself shut out late,' he saw Sir Galahad's gauntlets on the dresser. He even gave Cope a glimpse of his kitchen, where a self-contained Oriental, slightly smiling but otherwise inexpressive, seemed to be dealing competently with the gas range. But Cope was impressed, most of all, by the dining-room table and its paraphernalia. At Mrs. Phillips he had accepted the china, silver, and napery as a matter of course, an elaborate entity quite outside his own thoughts and calculations. It was all so immensely far beyond his reach and his needs. Randolph, however, had dealt as a bachelor with a problem which he himself, as a bachelor, must soon take up, on however different a scale and plane. For everything here was rich and handsome. He should not know how to select such things, still less how to pay for them. He felt dashed. He felt depressed, once more the wonder of people's having things. He sipped his soup in the spirit of humility, and did not quite recover with the chops. Randolph made little talk. He was glad merely to have Cope there. He indulged no slightest reference to the accident. He assumed willingly enough that Cope had done well in a sudden emergency, but did not care to dwell on his judgment at the beginning. Still, a young man was properly enough experimental, venturesome. Cope had recovered himself by the time dessert was reached. He accomplished an adjustment to his environment, and Randolph was glad to feel his unaffected response to good food properly cooked and served. "'He shat Gypsy all the time,' Randolph said to himself. "'I shall try to have him here at least twice a week.' Once in a while the evening might be stormy, and then the gauntlets would be laid on the dresser, perhaps after an informal smoke and pyjamas among the curios ranged round the small den. Cope set down his demitasse with a slight sigh. Well, he said, I suppose that, before long, I shall have to buy a few sticks of furniture myself, and a trifle of crockery, and a percolator. Randolph looked across at him in surprise. "'You are moving, then? You too?' Not to greatly better quarters, he almost hoped. "'Yes, and we shall need a few small things by way of outfit. We?' Randolph looked more intently. "'Housekeeping adieu? A roommate? Matrimony?' Here was the intrusion of another piece on the board, a piece new and unexpected. Would it turn out to be an added interest for himself, or a plain source of disconcertment? Cope, having unconsciously set the ball rolling, gave it further impetus. He sketched his absent friend, and told of their plans for the winter and spring terms. "'I shall try for a large easy-chair,' he concluded." unless arthur can be induced to bring one with him randolph by this time had led cope into the den established him between padded arms and given him a cigar he drew cope's attention to the jades and sword guards to the odd assortment of primitive musical instruments which would doubtless in time find a place at the art museum in the city and to his latest acquisition a volume of Bimbo's Le Prose. It had reached him but a week before from Venice. In Venetia Al Segno del Pozzo, fifteen fifty seven, said the title page, in fact. It was bound in vellum, pierced by bookworms, and was decorated in quaint seventeenth century penmanship with marginal annotations, and also on the fly leaves. "'with repeated honorifics due to a study of the forms of address "'by some young aspirant for favour. "'Randolph had rather depended on it to take Cope's interest, "'but now the little envoy from the lagoons seemed lesser in its luster. "'Cope indeed took the volume with docility "'and looked at its classical title-page and at its quaint biblical colophon. "'But—' "'Just who was Pietro Bembo?' he asked— And Randolph realized, with a slight shock, that young instructors teach only what they themselves lately have learned, and that in many cases they have not learned much. But in truth neither paid much heed to the tabulated vocables of the Venetian cardinal, nor to any of the other rarities nearby. Basil Randolph was wondering how he was to take Arthur Lemoyne, and was asking himself if his trouble in setting up a new menage was likely to go for nothing. And Bertram Cope, while he pursued the course of the bookworm through the parchment covers and the yellowed sheets within, was wondering in what definite way his host might aid the fortunes of Arthur Lemoyne, and thus make matters a little easier for them both. Al il monsignore paron o mo... Al Ilmon etc., Monsignore Paron, Al Ilmo et R R de Monsignore, Signore Pio, Francesco Bembo, Besco et Conti de Belluno. Thus ran the faded brown lines on the flyleaf, in their solicitous currying of favor, but these. Reiterated forms of address conveyed no meaning to Cope and offered no opening. Now, as once before, he let the matter wait. Randolph thought over Cope's statement of his plans, and his slight touch of pique did not pass away. Toward the end of the evening he spoke of the wreck and the rescue, after all. "'Well,' he said, "'you are not so completely committed as I feared.' "'Committed?' By your new household arrangements. Well, I shall have back my chum. Randolph put forward the alternative. I was afraid, for a moment, that you might be taking a wife. Oh, wife? Yes, such a rescue often leads straight to matrimony, in the story-books, anyhow. Cope laughed, but with a slight disrelish. "'We're in actual life still, I'm glad to think. "'What I said on one stretch of the shore goes on the other,' he declared. "'I don't feel any more inclination to wedded life than ever, nor any likelihood—' "'Here he spoke with effort, as if conscious of a possible danger on some remote horizon. "'Of entering it. "'It would have been sudden, wouldn't it?' commented Randolph with a short laugh. Well, he went on, one who inclines to hospitality must work with the material at his disposal. I shall be glad, on some occasion or other, he proceeded with a slight trace of formality creeping into his tone, to entertain your friend. I shall be more than glad, replied Cope, to have you meet. End of chapter seventeen.